the science of pain medications and the dark side to opioids. You're going to want to hear the details on this one, so make sure to tune in only here on the People Scientist Podcast. listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. my People Scientist Army and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 70, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so that we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. If it is your first time tuning in, then welcome to the People Scientist Podcast. Every Sunday, I release an episode on the areas of nutrition, our body, or our brain. I speak about topics to which I am an expert in. For example, I have a bachelor and master's in nutrition, my PhD in physiology, and my fellowship in neuroscience. So that's why I like to speak about those topics. So how are we all doing today? How is life treating you? I hope that we are all doing well, and that perhaps we and our lives are starting to return somewhat back to normal. I, for example, am doing some dancing and performing again, which really makes me very, very happy. So I'm starting to feel like myself once again. Is there anything that some of you are able to get back to doing again that you love? I hope so. Let me know in my DMs on social media if you are. I'd love to hear. Okay, so how about for today's topic? I want to cover a topic that I personally research, and that is the neuroscience of pain medication. This is an important topic, and I'm going to cover some information that I think not everyone is aware of in regard to receiving a prescription for pain medication from our physician. I've heard far too many times that people, particularly the elderly, are prescribed a large amount of opioid pain medication, and they may take them consistently without realizing the potential negative effects. So without further delay, as we always do, let's jump into some core takeaways. There are different classes of pain medications. For example, the most common and well-known are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, for example, like aspirin or Advil. And they reduce pain by kind of being like the fire truck of our body. And they put out the fire, which is the pain and heat and whatnot that is produced as part of that pain process. And then we have what's recently being used for pain management, like the anti-convulsants, like gabapentin. And gabapentin is kind of like the librarian that goes shh, that's trying to keep us all quieted down to reduce the ruckus in the library. That's kind of how gabapentin reduces pain. It quiets it down. And then we have the most effective class of pain management medications, which are the opioids. And I like to compare the opioids to like being on a seesaw. When we're at the top of the seesaw up in the air, we are feeling no pain. We're on top of the world. We are feeling great, and sometimes we're even feeling high. But at the same time, when we come off of the opioids, We might come crashing down to the bottom at the ground level. 
and not feeling so great. And that unfortunately is the dark side to opioid pain medications. They are highly effective in treating pain, but at the same time, there are a lot of downsides to taking opioid pain medication. And as a result, we sit currently in what we call an opioid crisis. Unfortunately, physicians were over-prescribing opioid pain medication in the hopes of helping their patients live a better quality of life to reduce their pain, help their pain management. But unbeknownst, we didn't realize that opioid medications, particularly the slow-release opioid medications that were thought to not have addictive tendencies, actually do have very strong addictive tendencies. The reason why is because the withdrawal symptoms from them are horrible, which perpetuates someone to go back onto opioids again. So as of late, there has been a huge pushback on physicians to stop or to reduce prescribing opioids in many scenarios and to prescribe far less or lower quantity than usual. Often patients are prescribed things without being 100% completely aware of the risks. So I wanted to share all of that information with all of you today. So let's get into those details. Acetyl salicylic acid, aka aspirin, or ibuprofen, which is Advil, work by inhibiting an enzyme in our body called cyclooxygenase. Aspirin and Advil are like the fire truck, and cyclooxygenase is like the fire of our body. Cyclooxygenase is always working and is necessary to keep us healthy and to keep our immune system working, but this enzyme is particularly active and switches to produce certain oxylipins during to produce those certain oxylipins during illness or injury that contribute to our symptoms. For example, cyclooxygenase, that fire in our body, produces oxylipins that induce a fever, cause redness, swelling, heat, and pain. So aspirin and Advil are like the fire truck that puts out the fire called cyclooxygenase. So that's how those non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs work. Gabapentin is an interesting medication to be more recently used to treat pain, particularly nerve pain. Gabapentin tends to increase the quieting down neurotransmitters in our body, called GABA, hence its name gabapentin. Gabapentin reduces the neuronal activity in the nervous system. That is why it has been used to treat epilepsy and seizures for so many years. But now gabapentin is being used to treat pain. So gabapentin is like the librarian in a library constantly telling everyone, shh, quiet down, and to not make a ruckus. This is how gabapentin can reduce pain. Then we have a third class, the most potent painkiller, opioids. Opioids are the most effective class at reducing pain and managing pain. Opioid medications include Tylenol-3 with codeine, tramadol, Percocet, which contains oxycodone, morphine, fentanyl, and the illicit drug heroin. Opioids act on the mu-opioid receptors of the brain to reduce pain, to reduce anxiety. At the same time, unlike the other classes of painkillers I mentioned earlier, opioids also increase feelings of pleasure and reward. Essentially, they have the potential to make us feel high. However, opioids, because they are so powerful, also have the ability to cause the opposite effect, or a strong rebound effect when coming off of them. They're kind of like the seesaw. It kind of has like a seesaw effect. When we're on them, we can feel high and on top of the world when we're on the top of the seesaw. When we come off of them, like if someone were to step off of that seesaw, all of a sudden we're going to come crashing down and hitting that ground. 
it's kind of like the effect that opioids can have. For example, opioids can reduce pain, but withdrawal from opioids very often causes increased pain, even more so than usual, increased sensitivity to pain. Opioids can also make someone feel high and enjoy the experience, but in withdrawal, opioids can cause a very negative affect state, meaning very negative emotions, high anxiety, feelings of depression, irritability, and low mood are very common. Like I said, crashing down off of that seesaw. That is because opioids can change our neural circuitry very quickly. For example, patients with opioid dependence tend to have less dopamine receptors in the reward and pleasure regions of their brain, meaning they may not feel the same happiness or pleasure from things that someone with more dopamine receptors may experience. So it is as though their reward thresholds have changed, meaning the same things that used to make them feel happy don't make them feel happy anymore. Use of opioids may also reduce the levels of molecules that make us feel good, like neuropeptide Y and endocannabinoids. At the same time, opioid use may increase the level of molecules that make us feel worse, like vasopressin, glucocorticoids, dynorphin, epinephrine, etc. This very negative emotional state from the withdrawal of opioids is so what so powerfully can perpetuate dependence or addiction to opioids because if we take an opioid, it can reduce all those negative symptoms in the short term. But then when we come off of them, again, it's only going to make it worse. Being or taking opioids can be like being on a crazy seesaw, like I said. Let me tell a story to help us understand the current situation with opioid medications a bit better. Let me introduce you to a hypothetical character, Dave. Dave is a carpenter. He works long hours and it can be very hard on his body sometimes. One day at work, Dave twists his knee really badly and he goes to see his physician. The physician tells Dave he needs a knee replacement. Dave is able to get the knee replacement, but he's in tremendous pain in recovery. So the physician prescribes Dave a couple months worth of oxycodone, an opioid. And that's supposed to help manage his pain. Dave takes some oxycodone a couple times a day for the first several days and is feeling great. He feels no pain. He feels very happy, not a care in the world. He feels a little bit high. That's due to the effect of the oxycodone on the opioid receptors of his brain. Then, after a while, Dave feels like he doesn't want to take the pain medication anymore because it's giving him constipation. That's a well-known side effect of opioid pain medication. But Dave still has that bottle of oxycodone in his medicine cabinet. However, Dave notices that he's feeling more stressed, anxious, and irritable than normal. His chronic pain elsewhere in his body besides his knee is actually getting worse now that he isn't taking the pain medication anymore. But Dave perseveres. He goes back to work a few weeks later after the surgery. But while he's at work, his pain is just unmanageable. His mood is even worse, and he can't figure out why. So he decides to take an oxycodone pill, since he has so many, because his physician prescribed him two months' worth. When he takes that oxycodone pill, he feels great. No more pain, and his mood is back to where it was before. Then a couple weeks later, his mother passes away, unfortunately. So Dave has a few beers to mourn her. He decides that he's going to take another oxycodone pill because he remembered how good he felt when he was taking that pain medication. And before you know it, Dave is taking an oxycodone pill a few times a day because he can't handle the physical pain of his job nor the emotional pain of losing his mom or the negative mood and feelings and emotional state that he experiences when he doesn't take the oxycodone. Then before you know it, Dave runs out of the oxycodone pills. 
He starts to go into major withdrawal. Horrible pain more than normal. Increased anxiety, agitation, anger. So Dave goes to his physician and complains of his pain again. This time, the physician may or may not prescribe more oxycodone. So then Dave starts asking friends if they have any pain medication left over. Then when that runs out, Dave has to start going to the illegal route to get his fix. He's desperate. He may spend all his money on opioids now. Maybe he wants something stronger than oxycodone now. Maybe he decides to try fentanyl or heroin. The really, really sad reality is this has happened far too often to far too many people in North America. One person is far too many. And this has happened to thousands and thousands of people just in the United States alone, not to mention all around the world. The ease of access and the over-prescription of opioids to patients has created an environment that increases the risk of drug dependence and drug addiction. Unfortunately, as a result right now, we are going through an opioid crisis, meaning a staggering increase in people suffering with an addiction or, or overdosing from opioids. Why this is happening is for a multitude of reasons. It is thought that one of the major reasons is because of physicians over-prescribing painkillers to people, which led to dependence or addiction in unsuspecting people. For example, if Dave didn't have a two-month supply of oxycodone prescribed to him, maybe he wouldn't have developed such a dependence or addiction. The physician maybe didn't need to prescribe him a two-month supply, but maybe could have given him just a few days' supply. But the reason why physicians were prescribing opioids as painkillers so much is because there was a big push for better pain management by hospitals. Physicians were failing at helping their patients with pain management. Too many patients were complaining of pain and how that was impacting their mental well-being and daily life. So the most effective treatment for pain? It's opioids. So that is what physicians started to do. And I wouldn't blame the physicians for this. They thought that they were helping their patients. But another controversial issue is around oxycodone itself, as it is a time-released opioid, meaning that it is supposed to result in a very slow release of the painkiller medication into the blood over time, so that it has a low-level, steady-state pain relief. Oxycodone is found, for example, in the medication Percocet. So when oxycodone was created by Purdue Pharmaceuticals, this pharmaceutical company claimed that Due to the medication having a slow release into the body, it was far less likely to result in people becoming dependent or addicted to it. However, Purdue Pharmaceuticals did not have any pharmaceutical data to support this statement very well. This is the issue. Turns out oxycodone, even though it is slow release, still has a very strong effect on people as a strong propensity to result in dependence or addiction. This pharmaceutical company is now under great heat and is being sued for making this claim without clinical data to support it. I mean, this is why pharmaceutical companies get a bad rap. It is so outrageous that a painkiller was made and doctors were educated on false pretenses that it was unlikely to develop an addiction. And so as a result, patients were prescribed this painkiller medication under false pretenses too. Currently, there is a strong conservative approach on painkiller prescription now. Physicians are only allowed to prescribe opioids for a shorter time frame, so they're less likely to prescribe an opioid for two months at a time, but maybe only for a few days or a week at a time. In addition, physicians have been told to stop prescribing opioids in certain circumstances. Another potential reason why this has become an opioid crisis is because of the onset of fentanyl. 
Fentanyl is a very, very powerful opioid that tends to be very short-acting. It causes a very powerful but short-lived high as well. Then there was the onset of carfentanyl, which is an even stronger version of fentanyl, the strongest to my knowledge. The sad truth is people are overdosing from fentanyl and carfentanyl because of how powerful it is. Sometimes it is being mistaken for other drugs, and people are taking fentanyl without knowing. Now this would be illegally, that they're purchasing the drugs illegally. Have you ever seen that photo of the amount of heroin in a vial it takes to overdose versus fentanyl? The amount of heroin needed to overdose in this particular photo, for example, looked like it was about half a teaspoon, perhaps. But by comparison, the amount of fentanyl needed to overdose, or the amount of carfentanyl needed to result in an overdose, was the end of a ballpoint pen. Carfentanyl is that dangerous. And it's dangerous because some people might think that they're taking heroin when in fact they were sold illegally carfentanyl. And as a result, they can overdose from that. The neuroscience behind an opioid overdose involves the opioids acting on the breathing center of the brain. The scariest side effect of opioid painkillers is that someone stops breathing. Unfortunately, this is how someone dies from an overdose of opioids or pain medication. The breathing center of the brain shuts down. Luckily, there is an antidote to this called naltrexone. So if someone is suspected to be overdosing from an opioid, they are given an injection of of naltrexone quickly. It can prevent the shutting down of the breathing center of the brain. And more research is going into how to protect people from overdosing on opioids. So where do we go from here? Is there any hope or sunshine at the end of this crisis? Well, that is what my department and other neuroscience labs in the world are working on right now. Scientists are trying to figure out a way to simply bring someone from the addiction phase back down to the dependence phase. So very briefly, there are thought to be four stages of addiction. One is experimentation, so just trying a drug out. The second phase is recreational use, for example, the use of a drug weekly at a party. Then the third phase is dependence, for example, I can't sleep without drinking alcohol, or I can't sleep, or I can't go to work without taking this drug. And the last stage is addiction, where someone's behavior may be very risky, aggressive, unpredictable. The individual may not be able to hold down their job. They may be in trouble with the law. So as I mentioned, the goal is to get someone away from that fourth phase of addiction, where they have risky behavior, and bring them down to the third phase of dependence, where the individual can still go to work, they can still have a good life, but they just require some weaker form of a drug to help them stabilize their behavior, to help them stabilize their withdrawal symptoms. So this is the case right now in the clinical settings, trying to get someone down from the addiction phase to the dependence phase. Methadone, for example, is a medication being prescribed to individuals with opioid addiction as a replacement for opioids. Methadone reduces the withdrawal symptoms from opioids, but does not get someone high like the opioids might do. So methadone right now is the standard of care practice for people living with opioid addiction. Other research from my department is looking at other ways, for example, looking at CBD or cannabidiol to reduce opioid cravings and relapse. So CBD comes from the leaves of the cannabis sativa plant, which can either be 
from a hemp or marijuana plant. CBD does not appear to have any psychoactive properties, meaning it does not get you high. The compound in marijuana that can get us high is THC. So CBD does not do that. CBD is thought to induce feelings of relaxation and sedation or sleepiness and possibly is able to alleviate pain. Yasmin Hurd, who is a great scientist studying treatment for opioid addiction here at Mount Sinai, published just last year in the American Journal of Psychiatry that in 42 patients living with heroin addiction, 400 milligrams or 800 milligrams of CBD was able to reduce cravings and feelings of anxiety in response to a trigger or drug cue. There were no reported serious side effects to this high of a dose of CBD. So this is where the research is going. We're trying to find new healthy alternatives to reduce the withdrawal symptoms and to reduce the craving and relapse for individuals with drug addiction. We're also working on ways to revert the brain back to a non-addictive state. But this type of research is somewhat in its infancy. But the great news is the brain is very neuroplastic, meaning it is very flexible. We have seen recovery of the brain in individuals with drug addiction. For example, some clinical trials have shown that exercise programs can increase the expression of dopamine receptors in the reward-pleasure regions of the brain in individuals with a history of drug addiction. This increase in dopamine receptors is an example of how the brain may return to its normal state after addiction. So exercise may be very powerful in drug addiction recovery. We are continuing to do more and more research to help individuals with drug addiction. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, on the neuroscience of pain medication. Unfortunately, pain is such a difficult condition to treat, and pain can have such a huge impact on our quality of life. Practitioners are prescribing medications to alleviate pain, but we need to keep in mind that these pain medications may come with some side effects, particularly the opioids. Opioids are very, very effective at treating pain, but the withdrawal from them can include anxiety, agitation, feelings of depression, increased pain and increased sensitivity to pain, and this low mood or withdrawal state may lead to dependence or addiction. If you are discussing your pain treatment options with your physician, just remember that if they prescribe an opioid, that there could be a risk for dependence or addiction. And I hope by me telling or sharing this story with all of you that it can help reduce the stigma around drug addiction. So if you by chance are prescribed an opioid pain medication, keep in mind to limit the intake of these if possible to reduce the chances of dependence. Right now in drug addiction research, what we are trying to do is to get people away from the addiction phase and down to phase three, which is the dependence phase. We are also working on ways to revert the brain back to a non-addictive state. And exercise is one of those key strategies. If you want to hear about other options for pain treatment, I did discuss capsaicin for pain treatment in episode 68. So give that one a listen if you haven't yet. I will try to do another episode in the near future on other ways for pain management besides these three classes of medications because I think that would be very useful information for all of us. So I hope that this episode was informative for all of you. I know it wasn't a very light episode, but I think it's really important information that hopefully can help contribute to all of us leading a healthy and happy life. 
So I'm going to take next weekend off from the podcast. I want to have a little staycation and try not to work at all next weekend. So I will be back here with a new episode in two weeks time on August 23rd. So I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks and I look forward to meeting you all back here the same time and same place on August 23rd. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.